You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay. Today, I am joined by Patty Lavardour, who is an assistant professor and the program director of occupational therapy at Old Dominion University School of Rehabilitation Sciences and is also the chairperson of the Special Interest Section Council at the American Occupational Therapy Association. Patty has extensive experience and expertise in the field of occupational therapy related to pediatric clinical practice, client and occupation-focused school therapy, mentorship and clinical practice change, and the development of expert practitioner career trajectories. Patty, thank you so much for being featured on the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's really an honor to to join you and to be a part of this experience. Thank you. Today, today we want to talk about your work and research in developing quality indicators for school-based practice, as well as a systematic review on occupation and activity-based interventions to improve performance of activities of daily living, play, and leisure for children and youth ages 5 to 21, which was just published in the January-February issue of the American Journal of Occupational Therapy. And fun little fact, me and Patty just found out that uh, we used to live in the same city in Chantilly, Virginia, where I grew up. And Patty, you served as, did you say the chairperson for all of rehabilitation in school settings for Fairfax County? I was the program manager for physical and occupational therapy services there in Fairfax County Public Schools. Yes. Very cool. Small world and shout out to Fairfax County, where I think we both have some some people and, and good good memories, at least. Absolutely. All right, Patty, before we dive into the details of those projects I listed, I'd like to ask what has motivated you to contribute to pediatric occupational therapy research and practice improvement? Well, Matt, thanks again for, for having me and, and giving me the opportunity to really sort of talk about um, my interest in this area. It's really, um, it's really an honor to sort of uh, be asked to join and to talk about my interest and the areas of work that I've been doing. Um, so it's been kind of an interesting career trajectory, but over my, the course of my career, I really noticed um, some, you know, sort of dramatic changes in the unique body of knowledge that we carry as school-based occupational therapy practitioners. And we noticed that, that that body of knowledge is really dynamic. It changes rapidly, and it's really influenced, I think, in a lot of ways by educational regulatory requirements, district policies, school culture, expanding evidence, et cetera, um, with regard to the effectiveness of our interventions. So, and, you know, and I think the, the past year has really kind of amplified and provided a, a, you know, really salient example of that. But, but despite all of these changes that we emerge and we see as we engage in our practice, the message from our departments of education really across the country and at the federal level has been clear across time. They really wanted us to focus on student achievement, high school graduation, preparation for success in colleges and careers after graduation. And, um, and I think that those mes- messages have really not only shaped our public education system, of course, but also the ways in which we practice in schools. So, um, you know, so from my lens, I think in order to do the work that we are asked to do and to do that work well, 
school practitioners require kind of, I think, a really highly honed professional reasoning set of skills. We need skills in communication, and we certainly need skills in collaboration. School practitioners, I think, really need to be sort of systems thinkers. Um, We need to be able to apply the occupational therapy process at the individual level, but also at the systems and the population level. And we do that on on a daily basis. So as program manager at at Fairfax County Public Schools, I I felt like I I lacked a really clear standard and I lacked the kind of a reliable measure of effective service delivery to really allow our department um, to illustrate our contributions to kind of these explicit expectations from, from the Department of Ed and also from our school division. So what I found is in, in those roles um, is that practitioners working in schools work and, and kind of develop competency on the job. They don't really always have access to the tools to measure and articulate their distinct value. And, and perhaps one of the biggest uh, conundrums that motivated me as a manager is that um School practitioners are often evaluated as teachers using performance measures that are inconsistent with our scope of practice. So I really set out on this path, really, you know, as a practitioner and as a practice manager to look at the professional trajectories of school practitioners and and really find a way to support it. I I focused, and again, because of all of these um, convoluted and, and, um, and challenging and, and quickly changing metrics, I I found that I've tried to sort of anchor my work around focusing on developing per- performance measures, developing quality indicators, and really trying to help uh, synthesize our body of evidence to improve, of course, the outcomes uh, for children and youth and improve the value of OT in schools. And that's really been, I think, my story, um, what has motivated me and my work. And it, it brings me up to where I am today. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for that background of, of you really kind of painted a picture of school-based practice. And you mentioned your work developing quality indicators. Uh, that's one of the things we'd love to focus on with you in this interview. What, what are quality indicators exactly and how can they add value to school-based practice when they're implemented correctly? You know, I think one of the things that we've we've really noticed, um, and 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 once again, the changes in um, our reimbursement policies, and and um, and certainly the pandemic have sh- have shown a light on what what we really need to do in terms of demonstrating uh, demonstrating our quality and and articulating that quality across our performance um, components. We've really noticed that that we need these sort of ways to comprehensively measure quality across the dimensions that we we work in. So we need them really in schools to help us think about what are the performance expectations of us? What is what is how can we define the work that we're doing? What strategies can we use to really kind of support the acquisition of maintenance of school practice competencies and then and then ultimately, again, we really need those mechanisms to evaluate them and talk about the value that we bring to school. So, so what, what we've seen develop over the course of time are these, 
these kind of explicit and technical standards really that are used to gauge performance. And so these, this, this kind of um, framework, if you will, that these quality indicators help us to address quality improvement and prioritization, both in services that we're providing to individuals as well as to systems. And quality indicators really provide and they ensure that we're providing the best outcome um, or achieving the best outcomes of our services. Um, the other thing that I think we need always need to keep in mind when we're thinking about something along the lines of quality indicators is that they are really connected to data. So, um, so for example, you know, we think about um, hospital readmission as, as a metric and we measure that and we keep track of that. And it's often used as the quality indicator for um, the care that's given in a hospital. I think in this way, quality indicators are used to kind of promote patient safety, promote quality of care. And so when we think about quality indicators in our practice field, I think that they give us that that window um, to really illustrate our distinct value and to ensure clients that get, that they're likely to achieve and to attain the best possible outcomes under our care. So, uh, so I think, you know, practitioners can use the quality-based indicators to examine and advance their own practice. They can use them um, as a way to kind of begin to begin the conversation about service delivery and about the contributions that we make in school and to, um, to kind of just talk to stakeholders about the service that we're providing and our effectiveness, as well as, our, as you know, again, those, those quality out, outcomes. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Thank you very much. And I'd, I'd love to ask you about your specific research in developing quality indicators for school-based practice. How were these school-based quality indicators developed? Um, well, that's really kind of a fun question. Um, the whole idea of school-based quality indicators really kind of came from somewhat of a kind of a brainstorming uh, session that I had with a group of my colleagues that are in uh, school-based practice leadership. And we we got together and we kind of began to sort of examine and contemplate the fact that quality indicators were popping up across a lot of our team members, uh, professional organizations. So for example, school counselors, school nurses, um, creative art therapists in schools, school psychologists, school social workers, on and on, were uh, developing quality measures for their work in school settings. And we began to really kind of talk about what does that mean for school-based practice and what would it mean for us if we had a set that could really we could use to really um, think about the work that we're doing. So 
I got together with my colleague, Yvonne Swinth, out of the University of Puget Sound, and uh, we set ourselves on a mission uh, to kind of begin to look at this, uh, this issue, this sort of conundrum that we were facing in our practice as practitioners, leaders, and administrators. So, uh, so our process was really kind of pretty straightforward. I think we, we did an exhaustive systematic literature review. Um, we looked at research, white papers, the, the development of school of, of quality indicators in other school practice settings. Uh, I'm sorry, with other uh, organizations and other professions. We looked at just a kind of a, a wide variety of, of literature, we, and we worked to kind of synthesize that literature to understand more fully where the gaps were and, um, and what practice indicators might kind of illuminate for us. So from that work, and that took quite some time to gather, um, we began to kind of organize a conceptual framework for quality school practice. And, and I have to add that, that the development of the quality um, indicators has been really an iterative process. We've, we've, uh, we met, we looked at the literature, we synthesized the literature, and then we, uh, after we've kind of formed this conceptual framework, we really kind of set out on a, on a journey, her on the West Coast and me on the East Coast, to talk with as many groups as we could possibly talk to. So we shared the but our uh, quality indicators with, at conferences and in a variety of different groups. And from that, we gathered an extensive array of feedback that we brought back, kind of reanalyzed and, and made um, pretty significant changes to the quality indicators. After that, we conducted a um, validation of the conceptual framework that we had already developed. We did a, a series of structured interviews with experts in the field, school leaders, occupational therapy practitioners, researchers, et cetera, just to get a wide snapshot of people's perceptions of the, um, the quality indicators as we, had in, as we had developed them. And then ultimately we formed uh, kind of our final set of principles, key concepts, and, um, and then those specific metrics that we think help to define and kind of illustrate what quality service delivery really looks like in school practice. So uh, we're, we've been in um, kind of our final stages of, of uh, beginning to, to distribute them and, and get them out to folks. We shared them at the, the December Children and Youth Specialty Conference. And, um, and, and we just, we continue to have conversations. And again, it's an iterative process. So we know that it will change along with change in, in school practice. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to kind of an ongoing, an ongoing kind of development of the project, but also collaboration with, um, with the folks that we, that we work with. I love that your process is ongoing because as we all know and, and have seen, the needs of this population are constantly changing. So that, that is very encouraging. And I want to ask Patty, how can practitioners access these quality indicators? Where can they go to, to find them? Or would you prefer they reach out to you or, or your colleague, Yvonne? Yes, they certainly can reach out to us. Like I said, we presented them at the, at the school specialty conference. We continue to, um, we continue to advance them and, and distribute them through those kinds of venues. And we're in the process now 
of of writing it up and sharing uh, it a little bit more widely with folks what those quality indicators um, look, look like. But but absolutely, people are are more than welcome to reach out to me, reach out to my my colleague, and um, we'll be happy to to uh, share where we are in the process and um, and to share those resources. And that's awesome. Thank you so much. Our our listeners are really going to appreciate that. And I want to ask how practitioners and leaders could use these quality indicators in their practice in schools. How would you recommend they begin to to implement them into their day to day? Well, that's a great question. We have um, we have a lot of uh, of our colleagues that are using them and that are sharing their feedback um, around how they are using them. And so I think you know I think the main message that that we have articulated and the way that we have utilized them in our own practice is that they are a a really um, comprehensive tool to help us kind of reflectively examine our practice. Um, I think it's a way to just kind of you know sit in reflection and thinking about and think you know thinking about um, what are my practice needs as a practitioner. What are, you know, what does my program need as a, as a program administrator? And to really begin to kind of think about and establish that professional development plan that can help, uh, uh, that can help you really kind of situate your practice in, in what is considered sort of best practices and evidence-based practices and, and so forth. And I think too that it can really help and, and what our colleagues have been sharing um, is that it's been able to really help individuals as well as groups develop those um, professional development objectives that they might have, but also to guide kind of their continuing education choices. So helping to kind of align and point to what might be an effective way to advance one's learning um, and, and, and practice opportunities uh, the other thing that I think uh, we've been hearing a lot from our teams that are, are using the quality indicators is that it's been a really helpful for them as a tool to help work with teams. So it's kind of been pointing to how to build competencies around collaboration, communication, um, and, and it's been helping people target where they could focus their energies on around enhancing some of that team the teamwork that they're doing, and then I think lastly, it's it's laid it's you know we're it's beginning to kind of lay a foundation for a lot of people on how to really develop an advocacy stance in their school division. So, looking at you know how do I communicate my needs? How do I talk about what practice looks like? How do I make shifts in my role as a practitioner in this school division? And how do I advocate for both the needs of the children and youth that I'm working with, with the teams that I'm working with, and also for my practice? So, um, so I think that that's been a big outcome for uh, the utilization of the, of the um, quality indicators. Absolutely. It sounds like they can be such a, a great support um, to practitioners in helping them to improve their practice and the impact that they have on on their patients. Could you share a, a clinical example or, or personal story from your own experience or maybe that of a colleague uh, of how developing or implementing quality indicators has had led to a positive outcome? 
Yeah, I think um, that's a, I, another really great question. I think that um, that I can give a couple of different stories at different levels. So the first is kind of at, I think about like at the local level. And again, I mentioned that I was program manager, but I also serve as an advocate and leader in the state of Virginia for um, school occupational therapy practice and and supporting pra- practitioners and in, in what they need. So I think kind of at the at the local level, I've had the opportunity to utilize the quality indicators as a way to have conversation about the effectiveness of practitioners in, in the work that they do. And one of the things that is, is on our horizon, one of the many uh, challenges and, and changes that is on our, our horizon is, is, a, is a shift in, in looking again um, as in other practice areas and looking at the value that OTs bring to the work in, in school divisions. And, and oftentimes, occupational therapists in school practice are evaluated um, utilizing teacher effectiveness scales. Yet, uh, there's really that disconnect between the work that a teacher does and the scope of practice for occupational therapy. So, so I've used the quality indicators as sort of a knowledge, as a, as a sort of a translation tool to help me look at the effectiveness of practitioners with and and be able to sort of translate that into some of the metrics that um, are collected by our school divisions and or our state to um, to talk about the effectiveness of school uh, practitioners. It's been, it's been a nice way to kind of enter that conversation and talk about the differences in the scopes of practice and also to look at and, and provide guidance around better ways that we can um, address student outcomes. So, uh, so I think that looking at it from kind of that practitioner effectiveness and in the school-based practice setting, we often get, again, clumped into that idea of teacher effectiveness. So again, being able to use it as a translation tool has been one really important story, I guess, for me um, that has been effective. The other, the other story that I have, I guess, is kind of more from a, a national level. And um, I think that the quality indicators, I've been involved in a couple of different projects one to look at the development of, of best practice documents at, at AOTA and looking at some of the, the official documents, et cetera. And I think the quality indicators really helped to um, guide, in, at least from my lens, the, the work that I was involved in and some of those pieces. Um, they've been helpful in guiding some of the work that I've done in continuing education and they have certainly kind of guided me and helped me formulate an advocacy stance to address some of the federal and state policy activities that I've been involved in. So, so it's just kind of given me a way to kind of think about what does, um, you know, what does practice really look like? And, and to be able to articulate and advocate for practitioners, again, kind of at the local level as well as as the national level. That's a pretty amazing to me how quality indicators can impact and influence practice from an individual basis, working with a, a single client to a, the local level and and 
generating systems change all the way up to the national level um, and affecting our, our whole profession. Uh, so that really illustrates the importance of using quality indicators and how applicable they can be to, to so many aspects of what we what school-based practitioners do. Patty, you do have so much expertise in, in working in, in school-based practice and, and such a deep understanding of what it all entails. I want to ask for all our, our school-based practitioners out there, what other ways would you recommend school-based practitioners could improve their practice? Oh, there's so many. Um, there's so many really amazing ways and sort of opportunities that kind of lie before us. But I, I guess I think if I had to sort of sum it up, I think it sort of lies in um, really assessing the value of our service. You know, what is what's really unique about what we do? And and I and I think what really kind of builds my passion around this topic is that we have we have so much to offer to our schools and so much to offer to children and, and youth. And so I think when if we take that time, if we take that reflective time to really think about our value, kind of go back to our roots, spend some time really examining our philosophy, looking at our theory. And I think just sort of reconciling and kind of reimagining the ways that we can support that that mission of the Department of Education and and really look at those long-term outcome expectations for children. You know, we we can sort of move ourselves, move that sort of needle forward to really kind of changing the trajectory, not only of our career paths, but of the, the outcomes for children and youth. So, um, so I think it's kind of rethinking really what we do in schools, right? And really kind of going back to that idea that we're there to, to change those learning trajectories, to change those outcomes, to ensure that children, when they leave us, leave us at, um, you know, graduate, that they're prepared to engage in work, that they're prepared to have a productive and fulfilling life. Um, and, and so if I had to kind of sum it up, I would think I would say to, to really spend that time on reflecting on the value of our service and then how we can develop an advocacy stance so that we're really out there and, and talking about the potential of children and youth in, in terms of those long-term outcomes. And of course, we can't, um, we can't forget that we just absolutely need to immerse ourselves in evidence and, um, and really develop the skills to translate that evidence to our teams. I mean, I, I think we just have, have such a, a great capacity to help our teams think more um, broadly about all of the potential um, facilitators and barriers to access and participation for for our students absolutely i I love that you brought up and and emphasized the importance of evidence there and to follow up on that how would you recommend school-based practitioners use evidence to guide their decision making in their approaches and in their interventions well i really love how you frame that question because i think i think we oftentimes lose track of the fact that our evidence is there to help us make decisions right i think we have to always, it's easy to kind of just read something and not really think about how it's going to impact the way that we interact with our teams and engage in in conversations around what this evidence means in terms of our individual student that's sitting right there in front of us. I think in a lot of ways, we've kind of become a little technical in our thinking about 
about the evidence. We've built our skills, which has been grand, right? We've, we've really um, built our school, our skills in, in being able to access the literature, examining it, synthesizing it, and really, you know, thinking about um, the information that it that it presents. But um, but I think we still need to kind of figure out and build our capacity to to situate that into the context of our, of the OT practice. So we, you know, we need to situate that evidence in our theory and our, you know, kind of our, like I said earlier, kind of going back to the roots, but situating it in our theory, kind of organizing it around how we're thinking about um, the factors that are influencing an individual's participation and then integrating that with the data that we're collecting on our, you know, sort of our, our, our experiment, right? Our, our student in front of us. So, so I think it's a process of really, again, building those, building the knowledge and skills to access the evidence, but finding really ways to, to situate it into the context of our theory and, and our data, and then being able to, to translate that and have those conversations with our team about what all this means to the work that we're doing with that one individual student. I love that. And I think that really highlights the importance of integrating evidence into every step of the OT process and how large of an impact that can have on the quality of practice and the positive outcomes that students and, and patients alike can experience. I'd like now to, to shift focus before we let you go, Patty, and, and talk about the systematic review that you conducted. That was the the systematic review on occupation and activity-based interventions to improve performance of activities of daily living, play, and leisure for children and youth ages 5 to 21. And again, that was just recently published in the American Journal of Occupational Therapy. Um, The objective of this systematic review was to identify, evaluate, and synthesize the literature related to the effectiveness of occupation and activity-based interventions to improve participation in activities of daily living, play, and leisure skills in children and youth ages 5 to 21 years, and to contribute to the development of AOTA practice guidelines. What does the literature say, Patty, are the most effective interventions to improve ADL, play, and leisure skills in this age range? Well, um, this is, is such an exciting project, and I do have to say that it is a companion document to a, a study that I did with this group um, that looked at IADLs and sleep as well. So, um, but it's it's been really an exciting opportunity. Um, so I did this work with the, um, the amazing AOTA evidence-based practice team and with my, and specific to these two uh, studies with my colleague, Stephanie Beesberg out of um, Mount Mary University in Milwaukee. So, and so I think, like I said, it was just this, this really huge um, undertaking where we really did an expansive review of the literature that, that really um, talked to those occupation and activity-based interventions, as well as occupation-based outcomes. It was, it was, it was fascinating. We had a, a lot of fun, took a lot of time, but I think after sifting through uh, thousands of, of records, we, we synthesized um, those effective interventions into essentially three main areas. 
The first is um, supporting engagement in occupations. So we really um, found very positive support for incorporating um, occupation into incorporating sort of naturally occurring occupations into the context of our work with children and, um, and participating with them in those kind of naturally occurring environments. So really just, again, embedding occupations into the whole pro- uh, occupational therapy process from, from beginning to end. And, and um, so that became sort of, I think, a, a overarching theme of this work. The second was utilizing cognitive supports and technology to really support participation. And those kinds of interventions were things like uh, collaborative decision-making with, with the client and or the caregivers, um, designing collaborative goals, utilizing prompts and supports and hierarchies to help uh, children and youth uh, uh, organize their participation across those occupations and activities. And then using a variety of different kinds of technology resources like, uh, you know, apps and uh, video video recordings and things like that to really help students and children and youth organize themselves and support that participation across time. And I, I think that those pieces, those kind of those three components, the engagement and occupation, the cognitive supports and the technology what we saw really supported um, occupational participation and performance across a wide domain of occupations. And in in this particular publication, of course, we looked at ADL play and leisure, but we also found some similar kinds of themes, similar, some different um, in, in the other domains of occupation as well. Thank you for explaining uh, some of those findings in the the systematic review. How would you, Patty, recommend someone implement these interventions to support engagement in occupations, utilize cognitive supports, and and technology? So we um, we actually spent a lot of time thinking about what does this mean in terms of uh, the populations that we serve, and um, and I I think I could sum them up in a number of kind of I think like just kind of bulleted suggestions. The first being really um, deeply collaborate with clients and caregivers on the development of goals and intervention plans. We saw over and over again in the literature that when those goals were made explicit, when they were made concrete, when they were connected to um, activities that were, or occupations and activities that were motivating and and the clients were able to kind of engage in, um, there were really good um, outcomes. We thought this the another item would be to really provide being really careful about the caregiver training, um, helping them to implement those, provide carryover suggestions, and really help to the, those caregivers. And again, whether those are caregivers in school or at home, but to be able to transfer the suggestions that we have for occupation and activity-based interventions into those meaningful contexts for, for the child. So really, again, that caregiver training, that carryover, giving those good um, supports. Another item that we talked a lot about was providing training and feedback to help clients initiate and engage in um, occupations and tasks and routines of meaning. And that one seems particularly salient to me right now during the pandemic because We've actually seen as we've reached into 
and spent more time with families at home and across technology talking about how how to really bring the engagement, how to initiate these tasks in the uh, in the various kinds of environments that are valuable for for children and youth and their families has met, has made a huge impact in some of those outcomes for children. So again, providing that training, providing feedback, helping families and caregivers initiate and engage their children in tasks and routines of value can be really, really helpful. You know, utilizing naturally occurring social partners can be really valuable. So we saw in the literature ways to embed peers. Um, and now we're seeing at home um, ways to in, uh, really engage siblings and family members to participate in those natural routines and contexts and environments that can be valuable for the outcomes for our children. Again, I think utilizing technology. So thinking about, again, like I was saying, the video modeling, you know, virtual reality, all of those kinds of interventions, apps, we're seeing more and more of those kinds of things kind of coming on the scene to help support and reinforce occupational participation and performance can be really, um, we saw that as, as kind of a really important attribute in occupation and activity uh, based intervention. And, and then I think finally, you know, again, kind of going back to some of our roots around motor control, motor learning theory and things like that, but helping our caregivers understand how to carry over structured practice, um, providing coaching, providing feedback on ADL skills in the home, find, you know, finding ways that we can coach families and uh, school caregivers on engaging that child in occupations of leisure. All of those kinds of things can be really, really helpful. I think I think what we found is that when we give our uh, caregivers opportunity to, to engage, we, ins- we instruct them, we provide those really explicit ideas for them that the outcomes are, are improved. So those, I think, would be kind of some of the main themes that we found around how to how to really implement some of the interventions from this study. Absolutely. Thank you for highlighting those interventions that were strongly supported by by literature um, and and evidence. Would you by chance have maybe like a, a case example or yeah, a, a case example of how a, a practitioner could go about implementing these interventions? What might they say uh, when coaching and providing feedback to a, a specific student? Yes. I, and, you know, I guess I kind of alluded to it and um, because obviously we did this study before the pandemic, but then now that we are in the midst of it and, and have shifted in a lot of cases, our practice to home environments and we've been supporting remote learning from home and, and really kind of contemplating what these goals that we might have for students for learning in the school environment apply to home, I think has been a little bit of a sort of a microscope about or giving us, I think, maybe a a really nice glimpse as to how we can apply some of these occupation and activity-based interventions into the home. So um, so some of the things that, that kind of come to mind when you ask for a case example are thinking about how we can build, how we can work with families around building routines, natural 
um, learning routines at home. I mean, I know that that's been a big piece of my practice over the last, um, what, 10 months now, is um, looking at how am I, how am I instructing, how am I coaching, how am I listening to this parent talk about what is challenging about remote learning with this individual with disabilities in their home? So it's been um, having that conversation about how can we create a learning environment for this uh, student in a kind of in a remote context? How can you build in as a parent ways to um, for that student to engage in carryover learning activities when they're not, you know, sitting in front of the screen? Or how can we implement these these learning activities in the natural environment? I mean, it's sort of like a it's it's what we've been asking for for a long time in school practice, right? How do we reach families and how do we really build these opportunities um, to to engage uh, these these kinds of activities at home. So some of the things I guess, you know, explicitly that I've done is talk to talk to the caregivers at home about creating a specific learning space, providing specific guidance around um, how, you know, what is it, what does it look like? You know, how is this knowing what this child looks like in school? What are they going to need at home to be successful in a remote learning? How can we transfer the uh, the specific learning objectives that the student may, might have had at home at school to home? So how can we, for example, build in literacy activities in the context of that family routine? So giving giving ideas, built embedding those uh, ideas into their into their natural routines. Done a lot of talk and uh, instructing caregivers on how to look at the kind of the naturally occurring activities and and then build um, opportunities for that student with disabilities to participate in them. So, uh, you know, getting down to the kind of the granular level, incorporating tasks like uh, unloading the dishwasher and sorting the, the utensils and putting them away and all of those kinds of things. So really, again, taking some of those a remote, some of those learning objectives and turning them into these remote uh, learning opportunities that hopefully fit into the context and routine of, of that family. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing some of those with us, Patty. And thank you again so much for your time and for being featured on the show. Um, as we're preparing to conclude, I just have two more questions for you. What additional resources would you recommend to our listeners? So, um, so the AOTA website's just loaded um, with some really awesome, I think, resources. So if I, if I were to kind of highlight the keys, uh, the first would be go to the evidence-based practice resources on the website. There are just um, a, a large array of tools and resources, um, how to, how, you know, to the evidence itself, how to utilize the evidence, how to, you know, kind of access it and, and use it with your, your teams. The other the other thing that you'll find are the children practice guidelines. So there's a number of different uh, resources that I think are really helpful. Uh, the first being the, the guidance document that came out of this research. So the children and youth uh, ages five to 21 was uh, co-written by my, my colleague on this project, Stephanie Beesberg, 
Um, that I think would be a really great resource. There's also a newly published document, uh, the Early Childhood Birth Through Five Years uh, Children Practice Guidelines that is available on the AHA website. There's also a couple of other documents that I think are really helpful. The Children and Youth, Children and Adolescents with Challenging and Sensory Processing and Sensory Integration Disorders and the Individuals with Autism Spectrum Disorders. Those are two very valuable children practice guidelines that would be helpful for practitioners. Then the last three things I think are, have been, been around for a bit, but there's also the official document um, on, it's called the Guidelines for Occupational Therapy Services and Early Intervention in Schools. I think that that really helps to frame that mission and vision of the Department of Education um, and helps to kind of situate our practice around those those kind of guiding missions. There are practice books, the the best practice books, uh, one in school practice and the newly published one in early childhood. And uh, and then lastly, the the children and youth section on the AOTA website is just loaded with tip sheets and ideas and um, advocacy documents and things like that that can really help guide practice and guide uh, the way that we're engaging in practice in in educational settings. Absolutely, thank you so much for those recommendations. And now we've come to the golden nugget segment, Patty. This is the final question that I ask all of our guests. And that is, if you could share one piece of advice or knowledge with our listeners, what would you say? Find a way to really engage in reflective practice across, you know, across your work. Taking the time to really kind of think through what it is you're doing, why you're doing what it is you're doing, how you're situating that into the missions of your school division, the occupational therapy framework, the our theory, and, and just, you know, really taking that time to think about um, and assess who you are, what you are doing, what contributions you are bringing to the school division. And then I think um, from that, finding ways to deepen, deepen your collaboration. So um, reaching out to stakeholders that you're comfortable with and also stakeholders maybe that you're not so comfortable with and talking about the attributes of um, occupational therapy in schools, talking about the value of occupational therapy in schools and really just, I guess, you know, sharing, sharing the message of, of the good work that we do. I think, I think I would have to say that those, those would be my two, my two pieces of advice Um they, have, they certainly have served me well, and you know they they provide a good foundation from which many other really productive um, and valuable things emerge. Absolutely, thank you so much for sharing those nuggets of knowledge with us, Patty. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, and we really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Well, once again, I thank you very much. Uh, um, it's been uh, really an honor and a lot of fun too to to kind of think through and and try to, uh, to, to kind of uh, try to encapsulate the work that I've done and also the work that I've seen um, my colleagues do over the course of my career trajectory. So thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. I'm glad to hear that. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.